Buck did not read the newspapers, or he would have known that trouble was brewing, and not alone for himself, but for every tidewater dog strong of muscle and with warm long hair from Puget Sound to San Diego, because men, groping in the Arctic darkness, had found a yellow metal, and because steamship and transportation companies were booming the find. Thousands of men were rushing into the Northland. These men wanted dogs, and the dogs they wanted were heavy dogs, with strong muscles by which to toil and furry coats to protect them from the frost. Buck lived at a big house in the sun-kissed Santa Clara Valley, Judge Miller's place it was called. It stood back from the road, half hidden among the trees, through which glimpses could be caught of the wide, cool veranda that ran around its four sides. The house was approached by grappled driveways, which wound about through wide-spreading lawns and under the interlacing boughs of tall poplars. But Buck was neither house-dog nor kennel-dog. The whole realm was his. He plunged into the swimming tank or went hunting with the judge's sons. He escorted Molly and Alice, the judge's daughters, on long twilight or early morning rambles. On wintry nights he lay at the judge's feet before the roaring library fire. He carried the judge's grandsons on his back or rolled them in the grass and guarded their footsteps through wild adventures down to the fountain in the stable-yard and even beyond where the paddocks were and the berry-patches. Among the terriers he stalked imperiously, and Toots and Isabel he utterly ignored, for he was king, king over all creeping, crawling, flying things of Judge Miller's place, humans included. His father, Elmo, a huge St. Bernard, had been the judge's inseparable companion, and Buck bid fair to follow in the way of his father. He was not so large, he weighed only 140 pounds, for his mother, Shep, had been a Scotch shepherd dog. Nevertheless, 140 pounds, to which was added the dignity that comes of good living and universal respect, enabled him to carry himself in right royal fashion. During the four years since his puppyhood, he had lived the life of a sated aristocrat. He had a fine pride in himself, was even a trifle egotistical, as country gentlemen sometimes become because of their insular situation. But he had saved himself by not becoming a mere pampered house-dog. Hunting and kindred outdoor delights had kept down the fat and hardened his muscles, and to him, as to the cold-tubbing races, the love of water had been a tonic and a health preserver. And this was the manner of Dog Buck in the fall of 1897, when the Klondike strike dragged men from all the world into the frozen north. But Buck did not read the newspapers and he did not know that Manuel, one of the gardener's helpers, was an undesirable acquaintance. Manuel had one besetting sin. He loved to play Chinese lottery. Also in his gambling he had one besetting weakness. 
faith in a system, and this made his damnation certain. For to play a system requires money, while the wages of a gardener's helper do not lap over the needs of a wife and numerous progeny. The judge was at a meeting of the Raising Growers Association, and the boys were busy organizing an athletic club on the memorable night of Manuel's treachery. No one saw him and Buck go off through the orchard on what Buck imagined was merely a stroll. And with the exception of a solitary man, no one saw them arrive at the little flag station known as College Park. This man talked with Manuel, and money chinked between them. You might wrap up the goods before you deliver them, the stranger said gruffly, and Manuel doubled a piece of stout rope.